Reach Young Adult Ministry sermons online from Tuesday, July 14, 2020 by Philip Jackson, pastor to young adults at Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, entitled, How Do I Honor My Parents When They Disagree With God? We are in a series of lessons called FAQ. Frequently Asked Questions, and um, there's a couple of reasons why we're doing this, this series. Uh, primarily, the first reason is that um, we live in a generation that is saturated with information, but there is little to no wisdom anywhere. And uh, the world is full of people who are experts who uh, comment on things that are happening in our world, and everyone seems to have their truth. Um, and in a world like that, how do you build your life when everything is uh, objective or subjective, I mean? How do you do that? How do you build a life that is stable? How do you logically make decisions and move from one thing to the next as your seasons change. Um, the primary reason why we're doing this series in particular is because I want you to know that God's word is relevant. A lot of times what happen is, happens is that we look at people in our lives who are living lives that are separate from the truth of God's word. They proclaim that they are living by God's word, but what happens is that we see them live and it's not consistent with the words that we read on the page. And so what happens is that we begin not just to doubt them, but we begin to doubt the Word of God. And if you think back to the Garden of Eden, the first thing that Satan tempted Eve with is he said, is that really what God said? It's a lie that's as old as time. And so what we have to remember is that as we live in a post-truth world, we've got to remember that there is truth. There is absolute truth, and no matter what the experts say, we can build our lives on it. Because looking outside of this place, looking outside into the world, I can see that in a world full of experts, everyone has lost their mind and there doesn't seem to be any security whatsoever. So how do we ask hard questions? It seems like we live in a generation that is scared of hard questions. That we are dismissed or we're told to just believe more. That's what you need. You just need to believe more. You just need to trust more. You just need to do more. You need to just work harder. You need to whatever. You fill in the blank. But the truth is that God's word is real and it's very, very applicable and apparent to every generation. And with every cycle of society that we go through, no matter what it is, whether you're wearing togas or you're wearing uh, Bermuda shorts and a Hawaiian shirt, it doesn't matter. God's word is relevant. Okay. Another reason why we're doing this, aside from uh, highlighting that God's word can take hard questions, is that I want you guys to know that these things are relevant even today. Um, we, uh, we cannot be scared of questions. Paul tells his, his disciple Timothy that you should study yourself to be approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Well, guess what? You can't rightly divide the word of truth if you don't know the truth. And so if you want to be a mature person, 
Let's forget being a believer in Jesus. If you want to be a mature person, you have to be a perpetual student. I love talking to Sam tonight, asking questions. I think it's great. Questions are great. So let's look at what God's Word says. So last week we looked at what do I do? How do I honor my parents as an adult? And we looked at the story of Jesus in the temple. Do you guys remember this? And, and uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus and the whole crew, they go to Jerusalem and Mary and Joseph head home after Passover, and they, they look around, and they can't find Jesus, so they go back. And we find that Jesus, who has submitted himself to, a, to the authority of mere human beings, he surprises them by saying, well, don't you know I would be about my father's business? And Jesus put on display this idea of total submission to his purpose as defined by God. Remember, we are in the year of transformation and what a year it has been. 2020 for us, for REACH, is the year of transformation. And, and our theme verse of Romans 12, 1 and 2 means that we live on the altar. We, we submit ourselves to being sacrifices. And in the process, what happens is we will know God's will. But that process of laying ourselves down and picking up His will is very difficult. Because the problem with a living sacrifice is that it's always crawling off the altar. Right? This year has been a challenge for us to stay on the altar. So last week we looked at the defining characteristic of honoring your parents is to live in submission to God's will. Tonight we're going to look at authority structure. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, turn over to Mark chapter 3. Let me, let me set the stage for you here. So in, uh, in Matthew, Matthew and Mark are the only ones that have this account of, of Jesus' life. And... What happens is that uh, Jesus and his disciples are walking, uh, walking home to Capernaum. And uh, on the way, it's, the, it's on the Sabbath day, on the way they pass through some grain fields and they begin to pick the stalks of wheat, the heads off the stalks of wheat, and they begin to eat the, the wheat as they travel. And the, the Pharisees and the, the religious leaders begin to accuse them of working on the Sabbath. Okay, so Matthew's account says that they eat the wheat and Jesus rebukes the, the, the religious leaders, and he tells them, this is ridiculous, it's lunchtime, we're going to eat, don't be stupid. And he points to David as an example, that David at one point in his life when he was on the run, ate the showbread in the temple itself. Okay, so, so fast forward towards the, towards the middle of the day, they end up in the synagogue, and Jesus is teaching. Well, as we're going to see here in, in Mark's account, uh, there's a couple of interested parties checking things out. Okay, so Jerusalem has heard that this Jesus guy is doing things. He's shaking things up. And so they've sent a delegation of Pharisees and scribes, lawyers basically, to go check this guy out in Capernaum. So Jesus is in the synagogue. This demon-possessed man comes up. Remember, this is on the Sabbath day. And Jesus turns to the religious leaders in the synagogue and he says, is it lawful for me to heal on the Sabbath? Because even if you have a donkey that falls in a hole, won't you pull it out so it doesn't die? And so Jesus calls him on the carpet, and he heals this guy, casts out the demon. The guy was mute and deaf. Sorry, mute and blind. He could hear, but he couldn't see or speak. The demon left him, and the man was healed. So all this, all this craziness is going on, right? So later that night, they, they decide that they are going to go for dinner. There's, they've got a host there in Capernaum. And so they go to, um, go to this home to eat dinner. And so this is where our story is going to pick up. Okay, so they've just done this stuff at the, at the synagogue. Jesus has just healed these people. And um, 
And we pick up in Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Okay, check this out. Verses 20 and 21. Jesus, oh, actually, I'm going to go ahead and read the whole thing, and then we're going to go back and take it piece by piece. Starting in verse 20. Jesus entered a house, and the crowd gathered again, so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him, because they said, he's out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub. And he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. So he, sum, so he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemes, for whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Okay, let's go back here. So the first thing I want you to see here is that godly submission, remember we're talking about submission here, godly submission attracts attention. So look at this response here. So the crowd is so large that they interrupt dinner. So at this point in history, what would happen in ancient Israel is that the host of the, of the dinner party, he would stand by the door. And as people would come in, as all the guests arrived, he would decide when the door would be closed. And as soon as the door got closed, then the servants would keep everybody out. Okay, so what happens is this mob from the synagogue follows Jesus to this house, so much so that the host can't even close the door. They can't even start dinner. Okay, so it says that in, in verse 20, as Jesus entered the house, the crowd gathered again so that they weren't able to eat. But look at this. This is what's interesting, is that... Jesus' influence and God's power were so distracting that his family wanted to shut him down. Okay, hold on. Let's pause for a second. Remember, where we left this story when Jesus was a little boy, it says that Mary cherished all these things in her heart. We talked about how <coughs> that means that, that she would be looking for signs that Jesus was God. Look at how she responds here. So Jesus, all this stuff is happening in their hometown. Check this out in verses, uh, verse 21. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. They're literally saying that Jesus is crazy. Somewhere between the temple, when Jesus is 12, to right now at this point, Mary and his siblings are waiting outside saying he's lost his mind. And they're going to go arrest him. Now, the Greek here, it shows that... that they literally wanted to restrain him like a prisoner. Not like, hey, we're going to go get Jesus because he's, kind of, he's kind of getting everybody all stirred up. But like, he is out of his cotton-flipping mind. Okay, and we're going to go pick him up. We're going to put hands on him and drag him back home. Now think about the implications here. Okay, st step back for a second. You have the oldest son of a family with a father who's gone. We don't know if Joseph is dead. We don't know what's going on here. We assume that he's dead. So Jesus, by birthright, would be the one who is the head of the family. He's in charge by the law of Moses. And so he's off doing his thing, and he's healing people, and he's doing all this stuff. Now he comes home. Put yourself in the, in the, in the position of Jesus' family. Imagine you're James, for instance, who later goes on to write the letter to the, to the churches. You're James, and you don't believe that Jesus is a God. You're the second or third born, right? You're, you're in the market, one of, your, one of your acquaintances, one of your friends says, hey, James, I, uh, I heard the story about Jesus, you know, Jesus, your brother. 
yeah, he was, um, he was, he was teaching. Uh, we know he's got an affinity for teaching, but he was teaching, and then these people were hungry, and then he, he like, prayed over this food, and then the, all these people got lunch. Okay. No, James, you know, there was 5,000 families there. Can you do that too? Hey, Mary, I heard that Jesus turned water into wine. Like, what's that about? These questions would have been following his family over and over and over again. You see, whenever we follow God's calling, when we submit to him, we start attracting attention, and it makes people feel uncomfortable. Now he comes to his hometown, to this home synagogue. The religious leaders are there. We got this delegation of, of, of Pharisees and religious leaders from Jerusalem, these important people. My gosh, Jesus, don't, don't embarrass me. Don't embarrass me. And he calls them out in the middle of the synagogue. He's attracting attention. So they're like, okay, we just need to go in there. He just came out. You know, we just need to talk to him. Clearly he's a little upset, like something's not right. Some people are saying he's the Messiah. I don't know if I'd go that far. I mean, he's a good person, but this is, this is a little much. He's crazy is what they're saying. Not like he's distracted. They're literally saying that Jesus, this kind, gentle boy that they used to walk with and play with, is crazy. See, when God starts to move in our lives, it's going to attract attention. And sometimes the people who are in authority over us, they begin to get nervous. Because now people are asking them questions about what you're doing. So Mary clearly does not agree with what Jesus is doing here. Why else would she be there? So his entire family, his entire his entire social connection to the world is there to stand against him with what he's doing. And yet, he is put in a position to where he has to choose. Okay, so this is setting the stage for us. Here's what I want you to see here, is that the submission that attracts attention doesn't change our primary responsibility of submitting to God and what he's called us to do. There will be people in your life including your parents, who look at you when you're being obedient to God, and if they're not walking with Jesus, or if they are walking with Jesus, they are human beings, and they will get afraid. When anybody's afraid, what happens is they don't think rationally. And so Jesus is faced with a family. He sees them for who they are. They're scared. What he's doing is causing them grief. He's causing them trouble. He gets it. But it doesn't change the fact that he has to submit himself to God first. In spite of his responsibilities. But the next thing what happens is that as we submit to God, it brings opposition. So first people start paying attention to us. And now all of a sudden, there's some serious opposition. Okay, look at how this unfolds here in verses 22 through 30. So it says this, it says, um, let me flip my page here. It says, the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, that's the devil, and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. 
But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder the house. Let me pause right here for a second. So a group of lawyers from Pharise- and Pharisees from Jerusalem come and they want to investigate Jesus, right? So they saw what he did in the synagogue. They healed this demon-possessed man. They said, oh, well, of course. He's not like us, so therefore he can't be, he, he can't be godly. I'm going to tell you something. There are things in our Christian culture that are not godly. There are things that we do that are not godly. What does that look like on a a practical daily basis? That looks like someone who doesn't spend any time in God's word. They live how they want to. And then they get on Facebook and they destroy everyone in their path. And they say that they're right because they're God's child. It means that we look down on people who look different than us. It means that we, we separate people into categories and we refuse to see them and we refuse to see their hurt and we blame it on just their bad decisions. We look at a person who's addicted to a substance or they're wrapped around the axle because of the decisions of their life. We don't give them a helping hand because they deserve the consequences of what they, what they brought on themselves. These are not godly responses to the world. Sometimes when you obey God, when you obey Jesus... If you have people that are not looking and submitting and being living sacrifices, they will point at you and they will throw arrows. They will, they will oppose you. But it doesn't change your, change your number one job to abide, to submit to what God's called you to do. Do you, do, do you push back in a hateful way? Absolutely not. You push back in a way that is appropriate to your obedience. If God has called you to do something, you obey him regardless of what that is. Because we have an allegiance first to him and then to others. These leaders didn't see a, a follower of God. They didn't see a, a, a person who was living a holy life because they didn't want to see it. There will be people in your life that look at you and no matter what you do, no matter what you say, they will not be satisfied. So what do they do? They make up stuff. They make up accusations. Look at this. Look at what they say. They call him, they call him he, they, they, in verse 22, it says, he, he is possessed by the devil, and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. Jesus, he rebukes him by saying, that's ridiculous. Because a house divided against itself, it can't stand. You can't win a war through friendly fire. You can't do it. If one army is killing each other, you're not going to win. It's not the way this works. Seeing that's, that's ridiculous that you'd even say that. Now he goes into this thing. Look at verse 27. I want to explain a couple of these things here. So verse 27, he says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. This is metaphoric language here. So what Jesus is saying is he's saying, look, they just had a massive episode a few chapters back based on this timeline in, in the book of Matthew where Jesus is, is uh as he goes into communities, people are so overwhelmed with the possibility of being healed that he's being mobbed to the point to where he fears for his safety. And so he tells his disciples, I want you to have a boat ready for me so I can get out. This is, this is what the president does, okay? So the president always has his motorcade ready just in case something goes down, right? Something goes down, they get the president in the motorcade, they get him out. This is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, look, everybody's getting a little crazy. I get that I have healing power. I get that, I, that we're doing all these things. But we need to be smart about this. 
And so, he, so while all this chaos is happening, people are crowding on him. They're trying they can to touch him. They're throwing elbows, trying to get to him. There are these, there are these people who are, who are possessed by demons. And one of the things that Satan loves to do is he loves to cause chaos. So what happens is these demon-possessed people are falling on the ground and they're making a scene. And they're beginning to scream. Who can, you're, the, you're the son of God. Oh, my goodness. How can we be delivered from this? And they're just like screaming just all kinds of things to add to the chaos. So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, before I can deal with any of these other issues, these root issues, I've got to shut them up. In regard to this man who walked into the synagogue who was mute and blind, who he, he needed healing himself. But what Jesus is saying is that I've got to deal with the distraction first. You guys are totally missing all of this. I can't have a dialogue if someone's screaming over here in my ear. I can't teach if someone is causing a riot. The first technique that Satan does is he tries to confuse. This is what demons do. This, the, he, is, he is all about accusing and distraction. But look at this other thing here. Actually, before I move on, I, I want to point this out. There are, there are, if there are not things in your life right now, there will be things in your life that are going to be screaming at you for your attention. To try to get your attention off of Jesus. Okay? These things are driven by your flesh. They're driven by things that you want because you feel insecure or entitled for something that God has not given you. It could be anything. It could be a relationship. It could be marriage. It could be a car. It could be a job. It could be a degree. It could be your own place to live. Freedom, that's what we talked about last week. Freedom, I just want to be free. That thing that you are so jealously chasing after, that's noise. God is not going to call you to anything that's going to that's going to take you away from your ability to obey him. Sometimes when we're trying to get our lives right with God, we have to take out the noise first. We've got to shut it out and we've got to dismiss it. Now look at this, this, this little piece here. Now remember, the Bible doesn't mean what it says. The Bible means what it means. Okay, Context is important. All these things are, are important. A biblical hermeneutic is really important. That's your million dollar word for the day, hermeneutic. Okay? So look at this in verses 28, and 30, 28 through 30. He talks about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. He says, Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemes they, blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Okay, let me explain this for a second as best I can. This does not mean that if you have said the name of Jesus in vain that you cannot go to heaven. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit um, is a process. Okay, so Romans chapter 1 talks about this idea that God has revealed himself to the world. Okay, we talked about last week about general revelation and special revelation. God has made himself known to the world by first showing himself in creation by the complexities of the world and the universe, but also through a specific spoken word that he has given to human beings that has been consistent over time. So Romans chapter 1 says that God has revealed himself to us, and he eagerly goes after us, showing himself to us. This is why 
people who have never heard of Jesus can still be saved. Because, according to Romans, Paul says that if those who don't know the law do the things in the law, they are a law in and of themselves. This is why, for instance, here's an example. Okay, Some of you know that I'm, I'm Native American. I come from a Cherokee heritage. When the, when the settlers came to the New World, they began to tell these Indian tribes about this man named Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father and what Jesus did. Well, guess what? Many of these Native American tribes says, oh, yeah, the Great Spirit, of course. Wait, what? Yeah, the Great Spirit and the, and the Son and the Father, they're all one. And then the, and then the Son came and he died for us. And, the, and then the Great Spirit, he, he helps show us how to live our lives. But you're saying his name is Jesus. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Paul describes in Romans that God has made himself known to all of humanity. Whether you were in the far jungles of the Amazon or you were in Tulsa, Oklahoma, God has revealed himself to you. Now, hold on a second. If you decide that you want to live your life free of conviction, you want to do what you want, you want to live the way that you want, you want to follow your own rules, guess what? There will come a time even though God is patient, God is kind, He is long-suffering, if you say to Him, I will live my own life, I don't care what you say, I'm in control. God will answer your prayer. Romans 1 says that He will give you over to a reprobate mind, basically is a mind that is free of conviction. He says, you know what, you don't want to feel bad for doing things that I've told you not to do, I'll take that from you. The book of Hebrews and the book of Proverbs says that we shouldn't despise the conviction of the Lord because who the Lord loves, He convicts. That conviction is proof that He loves us. And guess what we do? Whenever we tell Him, I don't want your conviction, I don't want you pointing out things that I'm doing that make me, make me uncomfortable, He will answer that prayer. And He will give you a, conflict, a conf conviction-free life. But here's the problem that a conviction-free life, a life that is void of any divine intervention or conviction, is a life that is doomed to destruction in every way. What Jesus is talking about here, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, essentially means that you are taking God and you are telling, you are telling the world that God is evil. You're taking who God has revealed himself to be and you have turned that around and now because you have a, a reprobate mind, a mind that is free of conviction, you now take your newfound enlightenment and you begin to turn people away from what God has revealed to the world. The reason why is an unforgivable sin is because the person who would blaspheme the Holy Spirit, who would take God's nature and what He has showed Himself, revealed Himself to be to the world, and to twist it for their own evil motives, is to do exactly what Satan has done. And to say, did God really say that? God is not good. God does not care about you. He doesn't care about what you want, what's going to make you happy. This is what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It means to take a perfect and holy God and say, He is wicked and evil and everything in Him is wrong. That person, the person that would say that and believe it and try to preach it from the mountaintops is someone who is not connected to God. And they will pay for it. Not because God is angry, but because they have chosen their path. 
Because to be separate from God is to be dead. They accuse him of being the devil himself. And Jesus says, no, not at all. You can't win a, win a war by friendly fire. You have to first eliminate distractions. And, he's, and he goes on to talk about this whole thing about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So here's a test for you. Who are your critics? Who are the people that are standing up and opposing you? Are they godly people that when you look at their life, do they have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Or are they proud? Are they envious? Are they full of selfish ambition? Do they seek after their own gain and not the gain of others? Well, guess what? When you're following God, those people will oppose you. They will question your loyalty. They'll say, you don't care about us. You don't, you, don't, you don't want to be with us anymore. This is disguises the truth that they don't care about God's kingdom because godliness is greater than loyalty. It doesn't matter who shares your physical DNA. What matters is if you belong to Jesus, he is the only thing that matters. And if your blood and family say that that is too high of a price and that you need to be with them and not with Jesus, guess what? You, Jesus talks about that. He says, I have come not to bring peace, but to bring a sword, but to divide father against child and mother against daughter. Brothers against sisters. He says, I, I, you will lose all of these things, but, but, he says, you will receive tenfold with your tribulation, with your struggle, with your division, tenfold of, of a community. That is, the, that is the body of Christ. You will be divided from people that you share a blood relation with if you are following Jesus. It's going to look a whole lot less like a political allegiance to either side, and you're going to be right in the middle. And guess what? You're going to have haters on both sides. Because you aren't divided enough. Well, guess what? If you, if you have more in common with living in, the, in Christ's kingdom than you do in living in a political kingdom, then you're doing it right. Godliness is greater than loyalty. They're going to question your motives too. Look at what they said. You're, you're doing this just because you're, you're a servant of the enemy. His, his own family is saying, you're crazy. Why are you doing this? In fact, there's another scripture that says that, that his brothers told Jesus they were going to go to a wedding. And they told Jesus, hey, why don't you just go ahead of us because we know you're all about to show anyway. Jesus said, no, you guys go on. I'll, 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 I'll catch up. They question your motives. Why are you doing this? You just want this for you. It disguises the truth that they want control over you. They don't want anything about what God's doing in your life. They want control. Godliness is greater than what we want. But here's a big thing. This opposition that Jesus is experiencing it's highlighting something really important. We're about to look at it. Who his real family is. You see, when you chase Jesus, you'll lose relationships. You will. You're not going to be everybody's favorite. I've battled this myself. I want everybody to like me. I really do. But there are times when that's not possible. And what the devil does is he comes and he tries to divide people of faith. But what God does in his divine wisdom 
is when you are chasing him, when you are submitting to living a transformed life as a living sacrifice, he naturally begins to peel people away from your life. And this is a good thing. God wants you to be surrounded by people who are doing this for real on purpose. So not only is there opposition, but here, here's the thing. If we stop right here, Jesus is alone. He's alone in his obedience. And there's no way that he's going to have any community at all. He's attracted all this attention to himself. Now his family thinks he's crazy. They've made a big scene. What am I going to do now? But God doesn't leave us alone. Look at this in verses 31 through 35. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, Look, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Look at those sitting in the circle around him, he said. Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. What we saw last week was that Jesus was all about one purpose, submitting to God's will. And whoever is going in that direction, giddy up, let's go. But if you're not, you're not part of me. You're not part of my story. You're not doing what God has done for me. Now, here's the thing about authority. So if you guys are, if... um, Romans chapter 13 and a few other passages talk about authority specifically, okay? So if you remember in the Garden of Eden, God delegated authority, his own authority to Adam, okay? So within the confines of the family, the authority structure to the man first, then to to the mother, to the wife, then to the children, that's God's design, that's pre-sin. That has always been. But after sin entered the world, God instituted government. This is where we get Romans chapter 13. Okay, every authority in your life has been given and delegated by God. That means that the authorities that are in your life, in Romans it says that those are for our protection. They're they're there in order to, to keep in check sinful, broken people. But here's the, here's the key. This is, this is government. This is family. This is church. This is your pastors. This is your employer, your boss, all of these things. There is a line. And Jesus is making a point here in this story. When your authority that God has delegated to you decides themselves to remove themselves from God's will and God's word, They have chosen to not be an authority over you. This includes your parents. Okay, hear me on this. We are called to love our parents, to honor our parents. But the moment that our parents stop walking with Jesus and they begin to do things for their own selfish motives, they have forfeited their authority. They have forfeited their authority. Now hear me very clearly, though. Just because your parents are acting in a sinful way does not give you license to act in a sinful way. Because while they are not being obedient, they will bear the price and the responsibility and the judgment of their actions. But if you follow them into rebellion, God will come and he will also judge you. Jesus, in this example here, 
he honored his father and mother because he was consistent with the values that he was taught as a child. If your parents have taught you to be obedient to God, be obedient to God. And if they, along the way, they lose sight of that and they begin to chase the world, and then they come down on you for, for, for chasing God and for believing in what God has said to do, he will deal with them. It's important for you to understand that if, if they have decided to not follow what God has, God has said, they have removed themselves from being an authority in your life. Jesus' family failed to see their own conviction. Think about this. <laughs> they, look at this. They, they, didn't, they, they knew something was wrong, that something was disconnected, and so they sent a messenger to go try to get him. They didn't even have, the, they didn't have the, the courage to go up there and like, hey, Jesus, can I talk to you for a minute? They sent a messenger to go get him because they were scared. They knew something was wrong, and yet they did it anyway. What does all this mean? Sometimes there is tension with your parents because God is trying to get you to do something. Okay? As long as God has, has not given you a calling to leave your parents' home, you need to submit to their authority. If they are not being a godly influence on you, if they are being an ungodly influence on you, it is not God's will for you to stay in that toxic place. If you are chasing Jesus, your parents should be all about you being equipped to do what God has called you to do. God doesn't need your parents to lead you in your life. Does he want you to have your parents? Absolutely. But he doesn't need them. You don't need your parents to be obedient to what God's called you to do. And if your parents are standing in the way of what God has called you to do, you need to get out of that house. And the whole, the whole business, okay, I know what you're thinking. Well, that's not going to work for me because I don't have a job that's going to be able to pay my bills. I'm not going to be able to get a place. The logistics aren't going to work, et cetera, et cetera. Go read Matthew 6. Because Jesus literally says, I know you need food. I know you need a place to stay. I know you need clothes. Guess what? That's not a, a big leap for me, and I'll take care of you. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Sometimes the contention with your parents is a natural thing that God is trying to use to get you out of that place. The longer that you're there the, is the longer that you're in rebellion. Okay? You cannot hold on to childhood, scream for freedom, and claim to be an adult when you're not. Okay? Time to put our big, big boy pants on and our big girl pants on. If we're going to chase Jesus, let's do it. If you need to stay at home to be obedient, to go to school, do it. If you need to move out to have the freedom to do ministry, then do it. If God has called you to get a job, you go do it. If God has told you to hang with certain people and not with other people, then you do it. Submission is how we honor our parents. We honor our parents by living a godly life. And if, the, if our parents decide not to live godly lives, guess what? That's not our responsibility. They have someone else that they will be held accountable to. I want to encourage you in this. How, what does it look like to honor your parents as an adult? What does it look like to honor your parents when they are on the wrong side of what God wants for you? In every situation, 
The answer is to submit. Submit to what God has called you to do. And if you're not spending time in this word, Romans 12 says that you will not know God's will. I was just reading my quiet time this morning in Romans chapter 15. The reason Romans is on my mind is because I'm, I'm in it for the summer in my quiet time. Because it says that it, it talks about how we are supposed to be uh, shepherds of people who are immature. If you're mature and someone else is immature, your job, according to, to, to Romans, is to love that person, give them grace, to show them mercy, to help them along in the same way that Jesus did it. And he goes on to say the way that Jesus knew how to do that is because he knew Scripture. I know that this is possible to honor your parents because Jesus did it. Now, y'all know you're like, well, wait, no, Jesus, he's Jesus. There's no way I can do what Jesus did. When Jesus was on this earth, he submitted himself. He laid aside his royal prerogatives, his godly prerogatives, and he submitted himself to be an entirely human being. That means that he was bound by time, and he laid aside his omnipresence. That means that he was bound to grow up. He laid aside his omniscience, his all-knowingness. He learned how to walk and talk and eat and read. Hebrews 9 says that Jesus was able to live a perfect life because he lived a life totally committed to the Holy Spirit, and he let God guide him. I want to encourage you in this. When you begin to submit to the Lord, he fights your battles for you. That's true with your boss. That's true with your parents. You have one job, brother and sister in Christ, and that is to abide. Abide, abide, abide. And when your parents hit you with contention, guess what? God will give you peace. He will give you long-suffering. He will give you joy. He will give you love. You will be able to see their hurt and their ignorance and respond in a godly way. Now, you're not going to be perfect. You still will have your moments. But the promises of God's word do not fail. How do you honor your parents as an adult? You live as a living sacrifice. And in doing that, you will know the good and perfect will of God. What's up, everybody? This is Philip Jackson, pastor of young adults at Evergreen Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday evening at 6.30 at Evergreen Church, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. For more information, check out our website, reachtulsa.org. You can connect with us on social media and on Instagram by searching for reach.tulsa. Also, be sure to subscribe to our content for the latest sermons and updates. You can also find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Bring your glory down.